You're not being compared to other lawyers. You're being compared to Amazon and Netflix and Apple and Tesla and Facebook and all the brands that your clients interact with who have focused on delivering a seamless 24-7, 365, anticipatory, convenient relationship. That's Joey Coleman, client experience expert and New York Times bestselling author. I don't care what you say. I care what you do. And you can tell me you are world-class and amazing and incredible, but if you're not actually delivering on that, there's a major problem. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're revisiting one of our most popular episodes from the podcast where I sat down with Joey Coleman to discuss how to cultivate a service-obsessed culture in your law firm, why first impressions are lasting impressions, and how to create a world-class client experience that turns every interaction into an opportunity for lifelong loyalty. At the end of the day, if you don't have systems that you can execute on consistently, stop deluding yourself. You don't actually have a business. You think you have a business. What you really do is you have an expensive hobby. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. For nearly 20 years, Joey Coleman has helped organizations retain their best clients and turn them into raving fans. But Joey wasn't born an expert on client experience. Believe it or not, he honed his communication skills in the courtroom as a trial attorney. I grew up the son of a criminal defense lawyer. So my first time at counsel's table, I was in sixth grade uh, when I was a federal court courier in an antitrust debt case that my dad was uh, trying and grew up basically in that environment. After going to college and law school, went straight from college to law school. After law school, was a criminal defense lawyer for a while, was a business consultant, went back to being a criminal defense lawyer, uh, and then worked uh, selling promotional products. I was a teacher in kind of the postgraduate level. I started and ran an ad agency. Uh, I had my stints with the Secret Service, with the White House, with the CIA, some amazing experiences. But the thread that ties all of these together, some people look at that and they're like, geez, this guy can't hold a job. But there's actually method to the madness. And that is in each of those positions, the way that you succeeded was by having a keen understanding of the human condition. Why do people do the things they do? And what can we do to convince them to do the things that we'd like them to do? So when I was a criminal defense lawyer, how can I convince them to find my guy not guilty? When I was selling promotional products, how can we create something that people will take home from a trade show and they'll remember us afterwards? When I was running my ad agency, how can we create a billboard that will get people to call a phone number or visit a website? 
in each of these positions, what I learned was even though they're completely different industries, completely different worlds with completely different desired outcomes, there's one common thread. The common thread is humans. And really what it allowed me to do is take the learnings from all of those and combine them into this discussion of customer experience and employee experience. You know, what are your customers doing? What are your employees doing? What would you like them to be doing? And how can we use different tools and techniques to increase the likelihood that our desired outcome actually happens? Now, I'm also somebody who's very passionate about customer experience and employee experience. And when people listen to the podcast and other podcasts, you know, generally whatever it is that we're speaking about is the most important thing, right? So if it's somebody's talking about branding, branding's the most important. If it's someone's talking about, you know, hiring, hiring's the most important. But when we talk about customer experience, I think there's few people that would argue that this is a good thing to have. But from your experience, how important is it in, in the grand scheme of things for a business? Well, what's fascinating, Michael, is you bring up a good point, whether we're thinking customer experience or client experience. And, you know, we might use those terms interchangeably here. At the end of the day, it's the humans you serve. I don't care whether you call them customers, clients, patients, audience members, kind of doesn't matter because at the end of the day, they're all humans. I think our goal should be not just to have this warm, touchy, oh, we feel good because we took care of them. That's fine. And that's often how client experience is pitched. Well, it's all about the emotion and the feeling. That makes perfect sense. And it's all about the bottom line as well. The research on this is absolutely staggering. The benefit of running a business that focuses on client experience versus running a business that doesn't. And where we see it show up the most and where my personal interest lies the most is what causes clients to leave And what's the difference between a client leaving and a client staying when it comes to your bottom line? And not only has this been proven out in my research, but research from Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, Bain & Company, Frederick Reicheld, the gentleman who came up with Net Promoter Score that many of your listeners I'm sure are familiar with or have heard about or may even have implemented in their firms. What the research shows is if we can get 5% of the people who would otherwise leave to stay, just 5%. That will increase your profits, not your revenues, your profits, 25 to 100%. Now, I understand some of your listeners may have been saying, wait a minute, the reason I went to law school is because I was told there would be no math, okay? That's why I went to law school. I was super excited about that. But the reality is the math is fairly simple, even though it sounds odd. And the math breaks down as follows. Number one, we need to recoup our marketing cost. If we don't keep a client long enough to recoup our marketing cost, we're in the hole for that client. Number two, the longer we keep a client, the more profitable that client becomes. Why? Well, because we recouped all of the onboarding cost in addition to the marketing cost. And as our team, whether that's our associates, our partners, our paralegals, our support staff, As they work more and more with a client, they become more efficient in dealing with that client's matters. So as a result, each additional hour they bill is a more profitable hour than the previous ones billed because we're already up to speed on the project, even though in most firms there isn't a sliding scale that, hey, the longer you've worked with us, the less you pay. That's not usually the way it works. So the moral of the story is if we can stretch a client for one more engagement or one more referral the incremental impact on the bottom line of our business is incredible. 
Yeah. And what you mentioned, even at the tail end there, I think one thing that we've seen consistently across the most successful, fastest growing firms is the amount of advocacy that they get from other clients and other lawyers. In fact, the majority of like, their best cases don't come from the direct marketing in, in many cases. It's oftentimes from word of mouth and referral. Hundred percent. You know, Michael, I don't know about you. I have yet to meet a managing partner or a business owner who said to me, Joey, I don't need any more referrals. I'm all good. No, no more referrals, please. We're happy. You're right. Not only do referrals come in at a much lower cost in terms of a regular marketing engagement to get a client, but as a general rule, if you treat your clients well and you teach them how to make qualified referrals, the referrals that come in are pre-framed. The sales process is exponentially easier because they already know what to expect. They already know generally what it's going to cost them. And again, the profit per client increases, not to mention the word of mouth. I don't know about you, but I would much rather have people out there singing my praises, which let's be honest, in the legal profession, doesn't usually happen. Okay, there's a reason why there are more lawyer jokes than any other type of profession in our society, right? I think those jokes are symptomatic, if you will, of the lack of client experience that most people have when dealing with an attorney. Why do I mean, it, it was, we talk about the legal industry in particular. Obviously, you've worked across numerous industries, everything from, I think, NASA and Zappos, I mean, across the board. But it seems like, you know, particularly the legal industry, where do you find that most firms are lacking when it comes to, uh, you know, client experience? What I'm about to say, I say respectfully, okay? And I say this as one of you, all right? I'm a recovering attorney. My first step was admitting I had a problem. There were 11 steps after that. It worked out all right for me. But the moral of the story here is I think you spend three years in law school having it drilled into your head about how to build a case, how to do research, how to write a brief, how to make an argument. Why is it that we don't take a course in law school on the law school version of bedside manner? You know, we have no problem lambasting medical professionals and saying, how can you spend all this time in medical school learning all about how to treat people, but not learning anything about how to treat people? The same applies to lawyers. We don't take classes in law firm practice management. We don't take classes in how to manage our employees. We don't take classes in how to communicate with our clients other than ethics which usually is a semester long. You have to take it in order to graduate. And there might be three or four cases in that entire semester where you talk about the client who didn't properly keep their client informed, you know, the lawyer who didn't do a good job communicating with their client and that's it. And so we're taught what not to do as opposed to being taught what to do. And then we get out into practice, and I don't know about you, but when I was in practice, it was very much the case that I was so busy running from courthouse to courthouse, doing filing to filing, you know, all this stuff that lots of times, and I'm not proud to say this, the client experience was on the back burner because I was trying to meet filing deadlines and pick juries and make sure everything was going well with the case that was in front of me, as opposed to maintaining the relationship with all the clients who I wasn't working on their case that day. The typical lawyer for context, I think the most recent research I've seen says that there's, they have somewhere between 40 and 60 clients at any given time from the day somebody signs a retainer agreement up to the resolution of their case. An individual lawyer on average in the United States, 40 to 60 clients. When I was practicing, we averaged 250 clients per lawyer. If you stop and look at the math on that, 
if I spent one day on each client, I couldn't cover all of them in a year, in the working days of a year. And so I think at the end of the day, what we're called on to do is think differently about the experiences we're creating for our clients. And when we do that, not only does it impact our bottom line and make our staff happier, but it allows most of us to reconnect to why we got into practicing law in the first place. I don't know anybody that got into law to write briefs. I don't know anybody that got into law to, you know, meet filing deadlines. They got into the law because they wanted to help people. Regardless of what type of client you serve, you were excited about the idea of using the law to help protect, defend, support, encourage your client. So why not make it more about the clients? Now, I'm curious as to the resistance that many firm owners have to really fully buying into the importance of client experience. And I say this in the sense that most law firms aren't prioritizing this in their law firm. And maybe it's because most law firms aren't prioritizing this in their law firm, meaning that there's not that competitive need for it yet. But it seems that consumers year over year, their expectations are changing for what they expect from the vendors, partners, you know, lawyers, doctors, you know, whoever it is, the businesses that they uh, do business with. Absolutely. Well, I think there's two major things at play here. One, and you hit it right on the head, Michael, is the idea of the consumer or the client expectation. It used to be, you know, let's roll the clock back 30 years, uh, 40 years. When you were practicing law, at most, you were compared to the other lawyers that your client had dealt with. Now, if you were in a personal injury type situation or a criminal defense type situation, it was highly likely that your client had never dealt with a lawyer. So their expectation, their comparison factor was what they saw on TV, you know, L.A. law, law and order, whatever it may be, depending on your age, what the, the TV show of the day was. That was their only context and comparison. And the big challenge that people had is. Most people watching law on TV think that a case comes in in the first three minutes and the trial with a jury verdict is decided within an hour with some breaks for commercials. And so when you get into a conversation with a client, you're managing expectations that they have that have been designed on a sound studio or in Hollywood, right? So we had that challenge. But in 2020 and beyond, you're not being compared to other lawyers. You're being compared to Amazon and Netflix, and Apple, and Tesla, and Facebook, and all the brands that your clients interact with who have focused on delivering a seamless 24-7, 365, anticipatory, convenient relationship that is all wrapped in how you feel and designed to make you feel a certain way. So that's what the competition is. As if that wasn't bad enough, there's another problem, and that is in the typical law firm, no one's responsible for client experience. There isn't somebody who has that listed as their role and responsibility. And as a result, that means no one's responsible for it. In fact, in most corporate settings, and I do a lot of work with corporations, the client experience person reports up to the head of marketing, who then reports up to the CEO. So when the head of marketing is meeting with the CEO, do you think they're talking more about marketing or client experience? Well, they're talking more about marketing because that's their title, even though the head of client experience reports to them. So as you think about your firms and your practice, I'd encourage you to give someone the role and responsibility of overseeing client experience. And don't make this, and I say this respectfully, a paralegal, okay, or a junior support staff person. 
make it a partner, ideally a name partner, somebody who that sends a clear message to everybody in the firm. Oh, this is something that's really important. And I want to be involved in this. Every business I've ever worked with, every law firm I've ever worked with, when they have said, we are going to start focusing on client experience. If you're interested in being part of this conversation, come to this meeting, has had unexpected attendees. What I mean by that is there are people in your firm who understand this client experience stuff better than you do, who would love to be involved in a project or initiative to enhance the client experience. They're just waiting for the invitation. So don't worry that if you roll this out, oh, how are we going to get anybody involved? If you genuinely make it available and you put the resources and the time behind it, you will have employees come out of the woodwork. And I think it'll surprise you. For many listeners of this podcast, there's already a major focus on marketing your law firm as a world-class organization with an amazing client experience. I asked Joey about the importance of not just marketing your firm as a world-class organization, but actually living up to that marketing. First impressions are lasting impressions. And I don't care what you say. I care what you do. And you can tell me you are world-class and amazing and incredible, but if you're not actually delivering on that, there's a major problem. I mean, you know, there's some interesting research that the American Bar Association did back in 2016. So it's a little dated, but I still think it holds true on what would happen when people were marketed to to come into a project. So when a prospect called a law firm, what happened? What they found is 42% of law firms took more than three days to get back to that client. 42%. Now, I don't know about you. In my world, that does not equate to world class, okay? That equates to, do you even care to have my business? And if you don't seem like you care at the beginning, why would I think it's going to get better over time? I mean, this is, again, comes back to the human condition. If people don't show they're interested early on, what makes you think that you're going to convince them to be interested later? I think there's a huge opportunity here. Now, I know in, in the book, you break down, you know, there's the typical client journey and, and then there's the, what you actually believe that journey really is. And like, then those eight steps, if you could just speak to why like the typical client journey may not be as appropriate in today's day and age when we talk about client experience. Sure. I think the typical client journey, and you may have read about this in a business book or seen it talked about in a magazine article or a speaker at an event you attended, basically boils down to this. You do a lot of marketing to make sure somebody's aware of your offering. You then get a lead. You then cultivate that lead in a sales process. You convince them to buy. They buy the product or the service, and then you're done, and you go find new people. It's a linear topic. It's a linear progress, if you will, or journey. And the opportunity to develop a lasting relationship is completely left out of the picture. I believe that the journey has eight distinct phases. And those phases walk the client through the different emotional states they will have as they start to get to know you, as they work with you, as they work towards the resolution of their case. And then ideally, on the back end, what are you doing to cultivate these adopters and advocates, the people who are loyal and committed to you, and the people who are singing your praises? far and wide. If we do that right, 
they then rinse and repeat. They come back to bring you a new case or a new project or a new initiative, and you run them through the cycle again. See, I think one of the big things that most businesses miss, Michael, especially law firms, because law firms, they'll sign a retainer agreement with a company, for example, and they'll say, well, we're handling all their legal work, so we're totally fine. What they don't realize is that the human condition, every time the client brings a new case or a new matter to your firm, in their mind, they're starting from scratch. Now, in your mind, you're like, oh, great. Guess they're going to use the retainer this month, you know, or whatever it may be. But we're not acknowledging the emotional and mental and psychological state of the client that they are feeling those same early stage nerves and fear and doubt and uncertainty about how this is going to resolve itself. So what I do with my clients is we look at the journey and we map the client experience to the client emotion to the firm's business operations. And sometimes it's as simple as tweaking the timing of your existing operations to make it line up with the client's emotional journey. Most entrepreneurs have at some point heard of the traditional buyer's journey, which focuses on only three stages, awareness, consideration, and decision. In both of our books, Joey and I argue that this traditional buyer journey doesn't reflect the way consumers make decisions today. I asked Joey, how should law firm owners be thinking about the new buyer's journey when developing their marketing and client experiences? There are eight phases as I see it to the client journey. And the theory behind that is if you do them right, it's like your client's giving you stray days, right? You get a great report card. Everybody's happy about it. Phase one is the assess phase. This is when a prospect is considering whether or not they want to do business with you. In common parlance, we call this marketing and sales. The secret during this phase is to preview the experience of what it's going to be like to be your client. We then come to phase two, the admit phase. This is when the prospect admits that they have a problem or a need that they believe you can help them with. They sign on the dotted line. They hand over their hard-earned cash. They officially transition from being a prospective client to being an actual client. We then come to phase three, the affirm stage. In the affirm stage, the client begins to doubt the decision that they just made. Now, I know this sounds crazy, but I imagine most of your listeners are familiar with the phrase buyer's remorse. Okay, we've all heard about it, but I would ask you, do you have a system and a process in your firm to address the buyer's remorse that we know your clients are feeling? In fact, the research shows they sign the retainer agreement, they pay, they walk out of your office, and before they've gotten to their car or back to their home, They're doubting the decision they made to hire you. Meanwhile, you're celebrating, you're getting filings done. You've, you know, gone to your paralegal or your assistant and said, put in an appearance. We got to get the, you know, police reports due to do. And you're in work mode and they're in, how is this going to end up mode? In the affirm stage, we need to address the buyer's remorse that they naturally have. We then come to phase four, the activate stage, okay? The activate stage is all about that first real moment of truth. That could be the first court appearance. It could be a deposition. That first time that they get to see you work. The secret during the activate phase is to energize the relationship, to let the client know that their decision to hire you and that doing business with you is going to be unlike any business experience they've ever had. We then come to phase five, the acclimate phase. And I will tell you, Michael, this is where most law firms completely fall off the rails. 
The acclimate phase is that period where the client is getting familiar with your way of doing business and you need to acclimate them to the process. Now, let's be candid. You spent almost your entire first year of law school, friends, learning about how something goes from an initial claim all the way through to a jury verdict. Your clients have not had that training and education. They don't know what comes next. They don't know when they're going to have to be in court. They're nervous. They're scared. They're anxious. Are you holding their hand? Are you telling them, hey, here's where you've been. Here's where we are now. Here's where we're going. And are you repeating that regularly enough that I, as a third party, could call any of your clients and say, what is your lawyer working on right now? And when they're done with that, what comes next? I'd ask you to stop and think about how your clients would respond. If you gave me a client's phone number and I called them and said, what is your lawyer working on right now? And when they're done with that, what will they work on next? If your client can't answer that question, you have a major problem in the acclimate phase. We then come to phase six, the accomplish phase. This is when the client achieves the goal they had when they originally decided to do business with you. Now, often as lawyers, we think that that's the resolution of the case, but that may not be the case. We need to ask our clients what their goals are, what they're trying to achieve, and then track our progress against those because we may also have situations where our client moves the finish line during the representation. I'm sure none of your listeners have ever had that experience where the client suddenly says, actually, I know I told you I'd be more than happy getting $100,000 for this claim, but I've really decided that $10 million is actually a more appropriate uh, settlement recovery for this scenario, right? We're like, wait, where did this $10 million come from? Who is talking to you that is telling you $10 million because they clearly don't understand what a stubbed toe is worth, all right? So what are we doing to make sure we're tracking towards the accomplished phase? If we get them through all six phases, we have the right to bring them to the seventh phase, the adopt phase. This is when the client becomes loyal to you and your firm. They're going to do all of their business with you. Anytime they have a legal matter, they're going to give you first right of refusal on it. And last but not least, phase eight, the holy grail the advocate phase, when your client becomes a raving fan, referring their friends and family and colleagues to you. Again, as we alluded to earlier, Michael, this is the phase that I think most lawyers are hoping to get to, but they're trying to jump to it too fast. They're trying to get to advocates and referrals way too early in the relationship without taking the client through the prior seven phases. It is very rare and that's why when I, we think about it, you can think of the one or two examples in your practice where someone referred a client really fast in the relationship and you got excited about that and you figured, oh, that's when every client should refer. No, 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 friends. Clients refer after you've proven yourself in the same way that you don't make referrals to any product or service you use until you know it works, until you feel confident that it works every time. And then and only then will you put your reputation on the line to recommend somebody buy a product or a service. Your clients are human too. They're just like you. So those are the eight phases of the client journey. So I imagine someone's listening to this and they're saying, sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> It is a lot of work. It is a lot of work. But you know what? It's, here's the thing, Michael. It is a lot of work. But so is being a lawyer. You didn't sign up for this profession because you wanted the easy path. Good golly. If you wanted the easy path, there are about 20 different professions you could have chosen other than being a lawyer that would have been a lot easier. 
Number two, while it does sound like a lot of work, one of the things that is implicit in the way that I teach this and the way I write about it and the way I've constructed this is a system that is replicable. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have systems that you can execute on consistently, stop deluding yourself. You don't actually have a business. You think you have a business. What you really do is you have an expensive hobby. Unless you have systems and processes in place, you're not going to be able to deliver on this. Now, here's the crazy thing. Lawyers are very familiar with systems. We know that it needs to be on a certain type of paper when it's filed. We know that it needs a certain cover. It needs to be submitted by a certain deadline. It needs these signatures. It needs these affidavits. We need to attest to X, Y, Z. We're used to dealing with systems. When we turn those systems into ways we interact with our clients, it gives them an experience that they're not familiar with. And in the same way that you ask your staff, make sure that we make the filing deadlines, you can ask your staff, make sure that every XYZ, we deliver this to this client so that we know we're continuing to be in regular communication, delivering those remarkable client experiences. Now, there's something you mentioned that very early on, right, even at the time of signing, right? So you bring on a new client and then there's that buyer's remorse, literally when they're walking to their car, right? Or right now, I guess, you know, virtually when they're signing off Zoom or, or wherever it is. But, you know, what are some ways in which attorneys can really address that buyer's remorse from the onset? It's a great question, Michael. You know, here's the thing about buyer's remorse. The research shows the bigger the dollar amount, the bigger the buyer's remorse, that's why you normally hear buyer's remorse talked about in terms of buying a car or buying a house, because those are usually the biggest dollar amounts. But here's the thing. Your representation is probably going to cost more than a car. Hopefully, to, for the client at least, is hoping it's going to cost less than a house. But there are plenty of cases where it costs more than a house. This may be the biggest purchase they've ever been involved with. So we've got to address the buyer's remorse. There are a couple key things that you can do in this period. Number one, reinforce and remind the client or reaffirm the wisdom of their decision. That can be done by reminding them of your experience, by letting them know that you're excited. You know, we alluded to this earlier, that kind of what are you doing to let them know that you're eager in representing them? We do a lot of this naturally in the sales process. Oh, we're going to bring our best people to bear on this. We've got a lot of experience doing cases like yours. Look at all these verdicts and recoveries we've gotten for other clients to do, do, do. Just move some of that conversation to happening after they sign. Oh, we're really excited about representing you, Michael. You know, as we talked about early in the process, we do about 35 car accidents a week. So we feel really confident that we're going to be able to get you a great verdict. Now, I understand I'm walking on some fine lines depending on the rules and the ethics in your local jurisdiction about what you can and can say about past performance. But the point I'm making is you can tell the client that you're excited to represent them. You can remind the client that you're eager. Here's something I know about most law firms, not all, but most law firms. After you sign the representation agreement, the client doesn't get a thank you note thanking them for their business. There are very few firms in the world that after signing the retainer agreement will have the managing partner or somebody senior in the firm write a handwritten thank you note thanking the client for trusting the firm to manage their personal affairs. Let me tell you, here's the, let, let's just play a little game. Let me ask a question. Listeners, play along at home, all right? Raise your hand if you have received a personal handwritten thank you note in the last year. 
Now, what's interesting is I know statistically the majority of you are raising your hands right now. Now, hang on a second. Keep them up. Keep them up. Keep that hand raised if you still have that thank you note. Now, what's fascinating is statistically only about 10% of you put your hands down. So about 90% of the people who've received a thank you note in the last year still have that physical thank you note. Why? You read it. You know what it says. You know who it came from. The reason you kept it is because in 2020 and beyond, human beings are dying for proof that they matter. It's why we see people flock to social media and count the number of likes they get. People are dying for proof that their thought, their idea, their presence on the planet has any significance. And when you take the time to write a handwritten note, what it says is, number one, you are willing to slow down. Number two, you are willing to go find a pen and paper, these archaic communication tools, to actually physically write something out. And then you were willing to take that letter and put a stamp on it and take it to the post office. And the post delivery person was able to bring it to your home. There are these built-in understandings when somebody receives the note that you actually care. You actually give a darn about them. If you did nothing from listening to this podcast other than to start writing thank you notes to your clients for giving you the opportunity to represent them, it would change your bottom line. It would change your practice because people will feel appreciated. It's clear that a major component of client experience is managing expectations. This can be challenging in the legal profession, so I asked Joey for his thoughts on navigating client expectations, both as a formal trial attorney and as the client experience expert he is today. Most lawyers, not all, most lawyers will say early on in the process, now what kind of settlement do we think we'd need to get for you to be happy? And the client usually answers that question in the first or second meeting with the lawyer. And then what happens is time goes on and you're letting the client know how hard you're working and what a good job you're doing. They start to think, well, if they're willing to put this much time into it, this must be worth more. So part of it is our own messaging of expectations and our own communication with the client. The other thing we want to do is continue to check in with them, right? How has it changed? But the last thing we want to do, or the third piece in this puzzle, which is actually one of the earliest things we want to do, is in that initial conversation, we want to pre-frame how this thing could go sideways. This is what I mean by that. So, Michael, you know, as I mentioned, we do about 35 car accidents cases per week. Okay, we've got a big practice. That's what we focus on. And here's what we've realized is lots of times we'll figure out what your case is worth based on your injuries, based on your loss of income, what everything's. And we, we come up with that number. But as time goes on, you start thinking that you want more money. Now, what that's natural. That's human. It's probably going to happen. And it's okay when it does. What's not okay is for us to move the finish line. When we put in our initial demand, we're going to say what we think this is worth. And I want you to know right now, today, before we've done five seconds of work on your case, we're going to demand a bigger number than we actually think it's worth. Do you have kids? Yeah, you have kids. Okay, great. This is similar to saying to the kids, you know, here's what it could be because you know the reality is you're going to be dialing it back, right? Or vice versa. You may say, oh, we want to hold it close because we want to get bigger and they're going to change their expectation. I want to make sure 
that you're well taken care of. I want you to know this is the number we're agreed to. And you think, and I think that if we get this, we've hit a home run. Now, if we get more, that's amazing. If we get less, well, that may be the reality. But this is what we're striving for. And then bring them back to that throughout the conversation. A lot of lawyers I know, when they make the initial demand, they just CC the client on that and they send that. And that's the first time the client has ever seen an official number associated with their case. And it's a bigger number than they asked for. And there's been no discussion about the fact that we're going to start big so that we have somewhere to work with in negotiation. Now the client thinks this is a two and a half million dollar case. And now you're in trouble. So what about the interplay? And I've heard different schools of thought on this, but between the actual, the weighted importance of the results themselves versus the experience. So like meaning that you know, if someone had a traumatic experience before even signing with an attorney and then the experience of working with that attorney is almost like a second trauma, but they got a great you know, verdict and they got a great outcome and yet they would never refer ever again. You know, wh what do you think is that balance or what percent of it is actually the result itself versus the experience that that client or customer has? I think most of the research would show that the experience, when in doubt, the experience trumps the result. And we only need to look to our own personal lives to see how that works, right? When we are working with a brand or a business and something goes wrong and they fix it and they make it better, we actually like them more than if nothing would have gone wrong from the beginning. So people get nervous about, oh, Joey, what if something goes wrong? Here's the thing, friends. If something goes wrong and you correct it, you're actually in better standing than if something hadn't gone wrong in the first place. So don't worry too much about that. The other thing is you get the client that comes to your door. What I mean by that is you inherit all the baggage of their previous relationships with lawyers. Now, is that fair? No, but that's human. It's the same way in our dating lives, right? When you start dating someone, you're not only dating them, you're dating everyone else they've dated in the past because whatever habits, whatever conditions, whatever belief systems, whatever patterns they've adopted from their prior relationships are now showing up in yours. That can be a good thing, but often it's not the best thing. And that's why we need to address it. So one of the things I think it's important for lawyers to do is when you're having that initial meeting with a client, identify the baggage. Have you ever had a legal matter before? Oh, no, no. Has anyone in your family ever had a legal matter before? What's your family's general opinion of lawyers? And when you ask these questions, and if you're a good lawyer, you're watching for the reaction, you'll see their face change when you say, what's your family's general opinion of lawyers? And then say, it's not that good, is it? Just be honest. You guys tell lawyers. What's, what are some of the lawyer jokes you tell? Like, what's your family really think about lawyers? What do they think about the meeting you're having here today? What do you think about the Get that stuff out in the front. Have the conversation so you know what you're up against. It may be that they have really positive feelings of lawyers because some lawyer saved one of their family members years ago and got a $10 million verdict. And now their definition of success is everything going perfectly in a $10 million verdict. I don't know about you, but I want to know that in the first meeting. So don't be afraid to ask the questions and see who they're actually comparing you to. Now, there's going to be firm owners that are going to 
come out of this podcast and they want to empower their team to just to provide these exceptional experiences for their clients. They are now on the way into the office and they're like, OK, we're going to be Disney. But what are some of the traps that you've seen you know, entrepreneurs fall into when they try to put all this stuff in place in, you know, into their practice? So I would say there are two major pitfalls that I see when lawyers try to implement this in their firm. Number one. And this is something that all entrepreneurs deal with. We have a tendency to read a lot, to go to events, to get new ideas. And we come back to our team and we're like, ta-da, here's what we're focusing on for the next quarter. And what's really happening with our team is they're saying, oh, great. So Michael was listening to another podcast on the way to work today. Or, oh, great. Steve was at another event and came back with this quarter's new idea. Or Barb was reading again. Great. We've got a new initiative that's not going to be funded, that's not going to have support from the top. And I'm going to be responsible to execute on based simply on we need to enhance our client experience. That's all the context I have. So number one, there's often an issue with there not being enough buy-in support from the person who thinks this is such a great idea. But number two, the thing that I see, and this cuts across all businesses actually, is it is impossible to ask our employees to deliver and to create a remarkable experience for our clients if they don't know what one is. Let me tell a quick story. So years ago, I was working with a company and I met with the CEO and he said to me, Joey, we want you to come in and do this day long training. We want our team to deliver Ritz Carlton first class white glove service. I said, OK. He's like, I want you to build a whole program around this. I said, I can do that. He said, we want Ritz Carlton first class white glove service. I said, OK, no problem. I got it. He's like, really? Ritz Carlton? I was like, I got it. I got it. I got it. So we come for the very first day and he introduces me to the audience saying, ladies and gentlemen, Joey's going to be here to teach us how to deliver Ritz Carlton first class white glove service. He sits down and I stand up and I said, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to start with a couple of questions. OK, I'm going to ask you a question. I'd like you to raise your hand. How many of you have ever spent the night in a Ritz Carlton? The CEO proudly raised his hand. The head of sales raised her hand. The CFO raised her hand. And no one else in the company raised their hand. I said, great, no problem. Next question. How many of you have ever flown first class? The CEO proudly raised his hand. The head of sales raised her hand. The CFO put her hand down. She's like, do you know the plane gets there at the same time? Doesn't matter if you're a row ahead or a row behind. I said, no problem. Final question. How many of you have ever had a meal where the waiters delivered it wearing white gloves? Even the CEO and the head of sales put their hands down. No one raised their hand. And I turned to the CEO and I said, it is impossible to ask people to deliver on a Ritz-Carlton first class white glove service if they've never stayed at a Ritz-Carlton, they've never flown first class, and they've never had a meal where someone brought their food wearing white gloves. The reason I tell this story is this. Your employees have not had the same life experience as you. They have probably never been picked up at an airport by somebody with a sign with their name on it. They have probably never been sitting in first class sipping a mimosa while the rest of the plane boarded. They have probably never stayed at a five-star hotel or eaten at a Michelin star restaurant or had a private tour of an art gallery after hours or had a personal shopping experience. The things that many of you listening have experienced in your life are completely foreign to your staff. 
So one of the things you can do as an employer is to start to look at the experience you're giving to your employees and see if it is of the caliber of the experience you're hoping they will deliver to your clients. Because if it's not, as the old saying goes, you ain't going to get there from here, right? It's time to focus on the employee experience. And the reason I believe employee experience is just as important as client experience is there are two sides of the same coin. As we improve one, we necessarily improve the other. As the client experience gets better, the employees get happier. As the employee experience get better, the clients get happier. And we can just ping pong back and forth and feed off of both of these. And Joey, for the people that have been listening to this, obviously, there's a lot here. There's a lot to put in motion. Of course, this is your phenomenal book, Never Lose a Customer Again. But what are some ways that people can really get started with this from the standpoint that you know, they not, may not be a customer experience or client experience expert? They know this stuff is important and they want to get it in motion. But there's, of course, you know, they don't know what they don't know. And at the same time, maybe they don't have time to do it. Sure. Well, there's a, there's a couple of ways, Michael. Number one, I'd encourage you just start exposing yourself to these type of conversations, right? Read a couple books on client experience, right? Most lawyers that I've come across are pretty voracious readers, but they have a tendency to read court cases and read things that are only focused on the industry. Get outside of the industry and read some of those books on client experience that you can listen to and customer experience. And don't hesitate to listen to a customer experience show and just in your mind, replace the word customer with client, okay? Excellent. And Joey, as we come to a close this being the game changing attorney podcast what does being a game changer mean to you i think being a game changer is refusing to accept the standard for success that is today i don't think it's enough to say yeah but i'm better than other lawyers stop that that's not a game changer that means you have the ante up chips to sit down at the table and deal get delta hand okay i would love it if on the list of tesla amazon google apple facebook netflix the brands that were creating experiences that everybody's talking about your law firm was in that name now i know that seems like a crazy stretch but I absolutely believe it's attainable. The bar for client experience in the legal profession is lying on the ground. Literally, all you have to do is not trip over it. You have to lift your foot instead of dragging your foot to step over what this standard is for client experience in especially the U.S. legal system. I think there's huge possibility. It's why I was excited to come on your show. It's why I'm excited that folks were kind enough to listen to our conversation. And I hope it's inspired you all to think differently about the remarkable experiences you can create for your clients. I hope you enjoyed revisiting this episode of the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with our guest, Joey Coleman, and gained some new insights from our timeless conversation. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Joey Coleman, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com. Oh, 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 o